It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For some, it's just a glossy magazine. But for many of its readers, it's the Bible. And its fans are some of the most famous people in the world. Hey Vogue, it's Kendall. What's going on? I'm Daniel Ricardo. Nicole! G'day mate, G'day, welcome to mate. Australia. Hi, it's Cara. It's Dua Lipa here. Miley Cyrus. A-Space. Jennifer Lopez. It's Julianne Moore. Hey guys, it's Kim. Hello British Vogue, I'm Adele. Hi Vogue, I'm Kate Moss. It's a cultural institution that has inspired books, films, and TV. I need 10 or 15 skirts from Calvin Klein. What kind of skirts do you Please bore someone else with your questions. The following night, with a little after-hours help from my favorite editor, I finished The Impossible, my first Vogue piece. And beyond the world of culture, it's a beast in the world of business, helping to shape and influence a trillion-dollar industry. That's about 2% of the world's GDP. Luxury sales have increased rapidly throughout the past decade. The consulting firm Bain predicts a further 25% growth by 2025. But behind the glossy facade, all is not well at Vogue. A power struggle has been going on between the high priestess of fashion I'm very decisive. I try and give very clear direction to the people that I'm working with. And the modernizing disruptor. I'm a black gay working class refugee. I'm going to create a magazine that's inclusive, features all women of all races, all religions, all ages. This is more than a tale of gossip and glamour, more than handbags at dawn, the fight for the soul of fashion's most revered magazine could shape the way society thinks of fashion and beauty for years to come. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Vogue, inside fashion's ultimate power struggle. My name is John Arledge and I write about business for the Sunday Times. John has interviewed some of the biggest business leaders in the world and chronicled the luxury world they inhabit. But today, 
He's here to tell us about a monumental announcement that shook the world of fashion earlier this month. There was an email from Edward Enenfull and various other people at Condé Nast saying he was leaving as editor of British Vogue and going on to take a global advisory position at the magazine, which would give him greater freedom to support it and and take on broader creative projects. And this was essentially Condé Nast and Edward trying to say, look, I'm being promoted into something better. And just given how important Vogue is in the world of fashion, I mean, is that the sort of announcement that, you know, does that cause a ripple on the front rows? Absolutely, because everyone in, in it's the most gossipy of all industries and everyone's sort of fantastically catty and brilliant, men and women, it's fabulous. So you, you just get endless sort of speculation and people wondering, you know, who the runners and riders are to take over. Why did he really leave? What's he going to do next? So it does become like a sort of fantastic soap opera. And John, what drew you to this story? Condé Nast drew me to write about fashion. Condé Nast has Vogue, it has GQ, it has Vanity Fair. It's got all these iconic glossy magazines that we all love. And it's kind of a bellwether for the way we live. It reflects society. And are you secretly a bit of a fashionista? I mean, you certainly look like one. (laughs) I do like fashion, yes, I do. Did you really know Armani? He would greet me warmly if if he walked in right now, yes. (laughs) Amazing. And now we know that Edward Enfield has gone. He's no longer going to be the editor of British Vogue. Before we get into how that's happened and why, just tell us a bit more about him. In some ways, Edward is an unlikely person to be the editor of British Vogue or indeed any other fashion magazine. I mean, he was the son of Ghanaian immigrants, but he wasn't actually sort of in any kind of glossy world at that point. But he was very interested in fashion from an early age. His mother was a seamstress. She had an atelier with 40 apprentices. Every day was magical. Every day was watching women get dressed, headscarves to the sky, tiny waist, those incredible colour combinations. And he actually helped her to make clothes, but he's incredibly striking looking and was scouted as a model on the, on the tube. A guy was staring at me, I remember, from Hammersmith all the way to Baker Street. And then at Baker Street, he got up and said his name was Simon Foxton, said he was a stylist and would I model. He went on to become an assistant to a very famous fashion photographer called Nick Knight. Uh, he went on to become fashion director of ID, which was a hugely influential fashion magazine in the 1980s. Everyone was reading ID in the face. If anyone listening to this podcast is old enough to remember that, <laughs> like me. And then he actually did go and work at American Vogue for a while with, with Anna. Then he went to work for another Condé Nast title called W and finally ended up as editor of British Vogue in 2017. So I'm never going to get this job because, let's face it, it's for middle to upper class white women. I didn't realise that Jonathan's plan really was to sort of take Vogue into a new decade. He's had a very storied, very successful career in fashion as a stylist and also as an editor. So he's been part of the Condé Nast family for a while. How did he actually become the editor of British Vogue? I mean, who was he replacing and how how was that whole transition? Edward Denenfell replaced Alexandra Shulman. She was a fantastically successful editor. She'd been doing the job for 25 years. And I think part of the feeling of Condé Nast was after 25 years, it was probably time to have some sort of younger, fresher, new blood, if you like. 
And how did the takeover go? Oh, it was brilliantly, fantastically awful. <laughs> As you might imagine, you know, endless stories about disastrous disputes and, and people being fired left, right and centre, clothes being hurled out the window followed by the, the, the people that used to wear them. And just absolutely, totally fantastic, ab fab madness. Um, <laughs> more seriously, there was some comment from those around Enfold that under Alexandra, it'd become a sort of home for posh white women, show pony, whatever the vocabulary that was used. There's some truth in that. There was one disastrous photograph that was taken of, of top talent at mm. Vogue around about that time. And it was just a large line of kind of white women, which is sort of fine. Yeah, very right? skinny. But very <laughs> very skinny, yeah, women. skinny women. But uh, that is not something that you want to do, particularly when you're trying to appeal to a broad readership in a diverse country. So Edward Edenfall is installed in Britain as the editor here, fresh face, changing the, the feel of the magazine, trying to sort of grasp it back from the old guard. And then the other big character in all of this, Anna Winter, she kind of is the doyen of that old guard, isn't she? She is the woman in, in charge, really, of so much of the fashion world. Just tell us a little bit about her for people who haven't followed that world closely. If you don't, recognize the name Anna Winter, you will recognize her if you saw her image. She is the one with the bob cut so sharp it looks like it will actually cut you if you go near her. She always wears sunglasses. She looks sort of like a human avatar. We think she's about 73. <laughs> some, something. But it might be a showbiz age. <laughs> so we're all 24 in showbiz years. <laughs> but, but she's completely consistent, completely brilliant, incredibly driven, without question the most powerful woman in fashion. I mean, she can really make or break people's careers, whether it's models, designers, journalists, or whatever. A hugely successful track record, particularly in the United States at Vogue, and has been promoted to become you know, global chief content officer, creative director. They have these fantastically important-sounding titles but she is absolutely king of the publishing hill in new york and she's been in that position for for years and years and years she is absolutely bulletproof she does have a reputation i mean i remember people always calling her nuclear winter she has some very unpleasant in some cases rather sexist insults hurled at her <laughs> i read in the new york times that i'm an ice queen i'm the sun king I'm an alien fleeing from District 9, and I'm a dominatrix. <laughs> so I reckon that makes me a, a lukewarm royalty with a whip from outer space. Mm -hmm. What do you think? <laughs> Good gig. But you, you tackle her at your peril, I think, that the temperature in the room goes down and, and she might actually have you killed. <laughs> but that's all. Tell us a bit about her background. I mean, how did she come to be the editor of Vogue? Anna Winter was born into the sort of creative classes of Britain. She was born in Hampstead, obviously, daughter of Charles Winter, who edited the Evening Standard. And she grew up around creative people, around journalists, had a whole series of jobs in magazine journalism in Britain before finally making the trip across the United States to become just this incredibly successful figure. I mean, there aren't many people who get movies like The Devil Wears Prada made about you. Whenever I think of her, I think of that movie. And for people who haven't seen it, I mean, it's, it's this character who is utterly terrifying to work for. I thought you would be different. I said to myself, go ahead. Take a chance. Hire the smart, fat girl. <clears throat> anyway, you ended up disappointing me more than, um, more than any of the other silly girls. Just a, a formidable 
person to be around, I imagine. Yeah, she stings sometimes, but goodness me, the result is fantastic. As my publisher says in the movie, I'm not always warm and cuddly, but uh, I appreciate wonderful work, creative, talented people, and uh, what I liked about the movie is that it really showed all the hard work that goes into the making of the magazine. Did you ever work for her? I haven't. No, I wish I kind of. I probably asked this podcast and never will. But I, 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 yes, it would have been. It would have been great. I'm sorry. Um, and just talk us through. You know, one of the reasons she's so respected is because of how she's managed to turn Vogue around. Talk us through all of that. She made Vogue, first of all, an incredibly successful publication in the United States and globally. And the September issue used to land like a telephone directory. If anyone can remember those, this great thud of a thing. The September issue is the benchmark for the fashion industry. It's the biggest issue of the year. It's where we talk about all the trends of the season. It's sort of the announcement of the fall fashion season, and particularly right you now, barely like, carry it. You know, it's just too, <laughs> uh, but absolutely fat with advertising and making a squillion pounds. It's fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. But she also did diversify into all sorts of things. The Met Gala became this sort of incredible showcase of American fashion. The Met Gala has returned to New York. The annual fundraiser for New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art is known for its over-the-top celebrity outfits. And only she really had the power to bring together all the people in fashion. People, people in fashion, it's like herding cats. But when Anna Winter says, I've got this thing, I want you to be there, you go. And they all go. And it's an amazing fundraiser. It's an amazing showcase for American fashion. And now it makes Vogue money because they do lots of spin-offs and they do lots of coverage and exclusive things. So it's a real brand within itself. And, you know, that kind of commercial savvy is often quite hard to find in editors. And she's got it in spades. So she's managed to, to turn the magazine around. She's become the arbiter of taste, really, for the whole world of fashion. She clearly calls the shots. You have to get her approval for anything that's going to last a content ask, probably. What did she make of Edward Enenfall becoming the editor of British Vogue? Hard to say because she's never really spoken about this. My honest impression is I suspect initially she thought it was all going to be terribly exciting and fun. I'm not entirely sure whether that lasted very long because it became very clear in London, at least, from those around Enenfall that he really wanted Anna's job. And he, he saw the British Vogue as kind of like a stepping stone, if you like, to America. It does feel like things clearly started to unravel quite soon because they started to host separate Vogue parties. Edward was very keen to separate himself from Anna. So there were lots and lots of parties there. You thought they might have been there together, including mm. something called Vogue World, which Anna set up recently. Edward didn't show for that, which is kind of unusual. And also, New York Times wanted to interview Anna and Edward together with various other editors. Mm. And famously, Edward said no. And he, he, ah. he was very careful to be his own man because I think he thought that actually the more independent he was, the more likely that people would see that what he was doing was the future, rather than in some way being diluted by getting too close to Anna or collaborating with Anna. I mm. think he, he wanted it for himself. And that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, we all want the top job. Coming up. So what went wrong? Why is Edward Enenfall stepping down as the editor of British Vogue? Hold up. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When Edward Ehrenfell took over at British Vogue, he was lauded as a breath of fresh air, coming in and shaking up the fashion world. But the industry was also abuzz with rumours and speculation about whether he'd eventually replace Anna Winter at the head of American Vogue. Edward had always made it pretty clear that he wanted the top job. I mean, Condé Nast will say he doesn't, but everyone around him will say he does. And he, he kind of went for it in a number of ways. I mean, he he made his British folk fantastically diverse, and the fashion was absolutely amazing. He got Beyoncé, he got Adele, he got Emma Raducanu. And then, hysterically, he wrote a book, and it was called A Visible Man. Basically, it was screaming, look at me, I'm here, choose me, pick me, pick me. He was talking to various executives and so on, but they were ending up backing Anna, and it just became very, very obvious mm. that he wasn't going to get Anna's job. But while people around Edward Ehrenfell made it clear that he wanted the top job, Ehrenfell himself has always been quite coy about the subject. Here he is being interviewed by CNN's Christiane Amanpour last year, who asked him the question that everyone in fashion was asking. I would like to tell you that I don't want Anna's job. Are you telling me that if it was offered to you today, now, what would you say? I'll say not, not, not right now, not today. So you're leaving a little bit of wiggle room for the future. What I would like to do in the future really is create. And again, in a second interview with the Washington Post. Anna does a very great job doing what she does. And as I said to her the other day, I am not after your job, but we work very well together. And I'm really happy where I am right now. So... A denial of sorts. 
He was happy where he was, but wouldn't talk about the future. And speculation was clearly so rife that he'd even had to tell Anna Winter he wasn't after her job. In the meantime, she had her own reasons to worry. One of the main criticisms was that in the past, under her leadership, Vogue had been pretty much the opposite of diverse. I mean, it had been a very thin white women publication, if you want to call it that. And there was a lot of criticism of that, particularly following the murder of George Floyd. And Anna actually had to apologise for failing to promote and put forward more black writers and more black Mm. creatives and people of colour in general in in Condé Nast. She has admitted that Vogue has been hurtful and intolerant and not done enough. She Mm -hmm. said, I want to start by acknowledging your feelings and expressing my empathy toward what so many of you are going through. Sadness, hurt and anger, too. I want to say this, especially to the black members of our team. But in a way, that didn't help. It sort of fed into a narrative that she still was pretty much of a dinosaur, as Edward's people saw it. And one of them said to me, sort of in an unguarded moment, why would you read a magazine edited by someone who discovered Woke last Tuesday? So in London, there was a sort of drumbeat of criticism, which came from a wellspring of frustration of people around Edward that he wasn't going to get this job. Was there ever a moment in that? journey where you think he had a chance, where he could have been the next Anna Winter. He could have taken over her role. He could have been the head of American Vogue. There were some fantastically creative projects that that they did and Meghan Markle guest edited and that felt very modern to many people and I think he might have been able to. I think the tricky thing is if you look at the American market, it's much more conservative. Vogue sells many more copies out there and perhaps there was a feeling in Condé Nast, that that really quite radical British Mm. modern view might work for the UK, but it's not going to work very well across the Atlantic. In terms of the commercial success, you know, you mentioned there that advertisers kind of thought Edward Enenfold's version of Vogue was, you know, was cool, something they wanted to be associated with. How was British Vogue in terms of being a commercial success? Certainly as far as advertising is concerned, they, they did incredibly well. I think enough people were seeing it online and in print for it, the advertisers to feel that it was money well spent. I mean, you never really know because Condé's a private company. They don't really release the figures in terms of readership. But Edward produced a completely brilliant fashion magazine that many, many advertisers want to be associated and enough readers were reading. You certainly didn't buy it for the words. Was it not as good a read? It was a far worse read. If you look at the quality of a lot of what Alexandra did, they were fantastic pieces by all manner of people. What it became was this really kind of fawning coverage of celebrities to the point where, you know, you could sort of only get halfway down the first column before you got a bit of sick in your mouth. I mean, it was, it was really, really awful and saccharine. They were definitely not going to be invited to, to write for them. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect to mix all the metaphors, that ship has flown. I guess a lot of people listening to this might be wondering why we're spending so long looking at, you know, the the movements in staff at, at a magazine. And it's worth sort of just stepping back and just explaining again how important Vogue is. Vogue has always been hugely important. I mean, fashion, people tend to disdain it, but it's an enormous employer, particularly in places like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. It's completely transformed the economies of these countries. So so it is actually important that that it's covered well and and the industry thrives. And Vogue Mm. has really helped that. Yeah. 
And for for somebody who was doing that role, the role that Edward Enfield was doing, to you know, to be editor in chief of British Vogue, how big a gig is that? Yeah, editor of British Vogue is winning like winning the lottery like fifty times in a row. It's fantastic. You get loads and loads of money. You say loads and loads of money. Give well, me this is, I mean, maybe a few hundred thousand. But it's all perks. I mean, you, you, you get first-class travel, and business class isn't good enough. You get endless expenses. You can eat out and drink out as much as you want. You get free clothes. I mean, you, you'd be mad not to be excited. Talk us through what this solution is, what the new Vogue will look like, because, you know, obviously there's British Vogue. There's you know, Vogue all over the world. It has its own different branches. Will this mean that it's all now being run effectively from America? Condé Nast is now a totally American company. There has been a complete... American takeover of all the Condé Nast titles worldwide. Why did that happen? Well, they got into terrible bother because they just weren't making as much money as they'd hoped to be making through the old traditional model, which is essentially, you know, selling advertising. For many, many years, Condé Nast's business strategy appeared to be, oh, let's hope the internet goes away. So they they had this old business model and they were losing loads of money and they kind of left it too late. So what they had to do was they had to massively retrench. And the obvious way to retrench was to take everything back in-house into America. And that, to me is the problem because when you're dealing with things like culture, fashion, taste, food, design, beauty, that's super local. What appeals to people in Seoul does not appeal to people in Sao Paulo. And it was hugely controversial because Tina Brown, who had edited The New Yorker and edited Vanity Fair, did a famous interview in the Sunday Times where she said this was the worst business strategy in the world ever. You know, people buy magazines because they reflect their culture. And if you try and create a global product from New York, it's just not going to work. I think she talked about... I fear it's Condé Nast is going to go down like the Titanic. But anyway, she was very critical and other people were very critical of it. So now what have you got? You've got a situation where everything's being run from New York and that means the local flavour isn't quite as strong. So what happens to Edward Ellenville now? Edward Ennefell is going to continue for a while and then go transition to this new global advisory role and pursue other projects. Projects for independent clients, fashion houses, probably car companies, tech companies, whatever. The issue for him, though, is this. I mean, once you stop being editor-in-chief of British Vogue, how interested are people in you? How do you think he'll be judged in his time doing the job? I mean, was he well-liked by staff? How did he go down? Edward Enfield, I think, be well judged by a lot of people. I mean, you know, he's had certain diva-ish qualities. His nickname was the Queen Mother, which he says wasn't true, but people <laughs> did call him the Queen Mother. Uh, but that's great. I mean, I would be the biggest diva in the world if I was editor of Vogue. I think it's just what's the point? I mean, you might as well enjoy oh, while, while that. You I'd can. like to see. Well, no, listen, but no, I, all of that I think is forgiven because you want a bit of the pantomime. No, I, th- I think his legacy will be really positive. I think you know people look at where he's taken it and they will say this is a really modern in-touch, edgy, diverse, inclusive, boundary-pushing magazine. And that's what it should be. Where it perhaps fell down was it was maybe too preachy. Nobody really likes being told what Mm. to do, especially in a fashion magazine. Secondly, for some people, the kind of gender fluidity of it, uh, having a man on the cover for the first time, for example, was just maybe kind of a step too far. But but other people quite rightly would say, look, it's just modern. And it's great. So I, I think he should be incredibly satisfied. The only question mark I would raise was the thing we were talking about earlier about the quality of the writing. 
I think there was a completely comedic uh, interview with Beyonce, if I'm remembering. I went over to her house in Los Angeles. And, and I think there was sort of one quote from Beyonce, which is something between like, nice to see you and I love my children or something. I mean, you didn't learn anything about these people other than the things that they wanted you to learn. And in the end, it's really, really, really boring. You want some revelation. So, John, what happens now to British Vogue? This editor-in-chief of British Vogue, that title is going to go when Edward goes, and it will be this sort of slightly feeble sort of head of content or something, which, which basically has massive letters written on it. You're not really in charge. It's Anna's magazine. And what about the other great character in all of this? So Anna Winter, who sounds like she's going to be busier than ever at the age of 73, running all of worldwide Vogue. How long do you think she can hang on to the crown? Anna Winter's been talking about moving back to Britain. I, I Listen, again, one never knows anything that's going to happen in fashion because you think you know one thing and then it's all different next Tuesday. But uh, essentially she runs all Condé Nast titles, content sort of globally. So now she's got all of that. But um, as long as she's kind of fit and healthy and energetic, which she is, um, she could go on for as long as she liked. So I think it's really up to her now. She's won this battle. The only battle she was going to have was with Edward. He shot for the moon. He missed. He's out and she's forever in vogue. Is there any way he'd, um, he'd come back? You know, given that she is 73, he's still Well, if, if he pushed her under a bus, maybe. <laughs> but he's too nice for that. <laughs> We approached Condé Nast and Edward Ennenfell's representatives for this podcast, but they didn't want to go on the record. We understand that their position is that there was no power struggle between Edward Ennenfell and Anna Winter. He never wanted her job and that he's simply taking a more expanded role at the company. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sunday Times writer John Arledge. You can find all of John's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. And for more from him, do listen back to our podcast on The Sunday Times Rich List. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.